Well, this morning our text is going to be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but before you turn there, I'd like to have you turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And I will turn there with you. And I'd like to read verses 1 through 8 as our reading this morning about this very precious and special day. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples word. The account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It would be a number of years later that the Apostle Paul <clears throat> would write about resurrection and he would say in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 12 through 22, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be, that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Spring is a wonderful time of the year. Everything around us, around us begins to awaken from its winter sleep 
and bud forth with new and vibrant life. I'm sure that many of you, spring is, for many of you, spring is, is probably your favorite season, except for the winds and the allergies. But it's probably still your favorite season. And you might get enthused when the grass and the trees begin to turn green, except for the allergies and all that's connected to that. And the flowers begin to grow and they show their beautiful faces. The pleasant temperatures and the gentle breezes, when they're gentle, always seem to revitalize us. But I believe that it's fitting that we honor the day of Christ's resurrection during the season when life springs forth anew. Because new life is exactly what this day is all about. For Jesus Christ died on an earthly Gentile cross for the sins of the world. And he was buried in a Jewish tomb and he came forth alive on the third day for both Jew and Gentile. And what do we know about that? What we know is that he lives forevermore. Amen? That's why we rejoice. That's why we praise him each and every day of our lives. This is not a continual dying and a continual rising and a continual dying. No, died once rose again once, and he's alive. And so this holiday perhaps is the most important one observed by Christians universally. And as significant as Christ's virgin birth and vicarious death were, they would have been ultimately meaningless without his resurrection from the tomb. Everything we believe about salvation, everything that we believe about our Savior hinges on the resurrection. It is this idea that we want to deal with today. I've entitled this message, The Resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Rapture of the Church. Why those two things today? While resurrection and rapture have their, their distinctions from one another, nonetheless, there is a connection between resurrection and those who will be caught up to be with Jesus when he comes. And we'll certainly talk about that shortly. But it's always important to realize that Jesus did not, uh, did not rise from the dead alone for himself and only for himself, but for all and everyone who believes in him and believes in him as the Lord and Savior of our lives. And so the resurrection itself has, has some very important aspects to it that help us in our Christian walk to help us to understand why we're here this morning. And I don't mean just on Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, but every time we gather in the name of Jesus Christ. First of all, the resurrection confirms the deity of Jesus Christ. We need to realize that it was God who went to the cross. And he was God in the flesh. If you have assumed that the majority of Americans believe Jesus was God in the flesh, you would be mistaken. Now, in a 1983 Gallup poll, and some of you will probably say, 1983, man, that was 35 years ago. That's okay, hold on. We'll catch up. 
There's a reason for this. There's always a reason for something. So I'm just letting you know. But in 1983, Gallup poll, Americans were asked the question, who do you think Jesus Christ is? 70% of those interviewed said Jesus was not just another man. Well, that could mean a lot of things, right? He was not just another man. 42% stated that Jesus was God among men. 42% of Americans, American adults. 27% felt Jesus was only human, but divinely called. 9% stated that Jesus was divine because he embodied the best of humanity. Whatever that means. But also, 81% of Americans polled at that time considered themselves to be Christians. That was, again, 35 years ago. Let's kind of move forward to today, or at least close to today. There's a lot of staggering statistics. If, if we go back to the issue of Jesus or who he is, in a very recent poll, 92% of American adults believe that Jesus was a real person. 92%, I don't know where those other eight are from, what planet they might be from. But from those 92%, 56%, said Jesus was God. Of the millennials, the younger generation as it were, only 48% considered him to be God. But of the adults, 52% of the adults also believe that Jesus, while on earth, could have committed sin. And that's a staggering thing, isn't it? Because most of those are people that go to church. And we'll see that in just a moment. But it was 56% of millennials who believe that Jesus also committed sin. And 62% of adults, and again, this is a recent poll, uh, said they had a personal commitment to Jesus. So numbers are kind of interesting, you know, to, to, to consider. For example, the, the statistics in 2016 by the Barna poll that said 51% of church-going Americans do not know what the Great Commission is. I, I mentioned this on Wednesday night, I get the wrong number, so I had to look it up. 51% of church-going Americans do not know what the Great Commission is. You all know what the Great Commission is? All you got to do is look at what? Matthew chapter 28, the one that we read from earlier today, at the very end, verses 18 through 20, that's the Great Commission. That's always been the Great Commission. That's what we should teach in the church all the time, is the Great Commission. Where Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In that, in that recent poll, 35% of Americans consider themselves as born again. 35%. 23% consider themselves as Bible-minded. Now I'm really getting concerned. I certainly hope that more than 23% of you consider yourselves as Bible-minded. I would hope that 100% of you are Bible-minded. But only 7% believe that they are evangelical Christians. That comes from the confusion that is being taught in churches today as to what the Bible is or whether it's God's word or not. And then there are 25% that strongly believe that good works result in going to heaven. This is church-going people. 25% of church-going people strongly believe that good works result in going to heaven. Now don't raise your hands, folks. Tonight, today's not a good day for that. 
If you believe that good works get you into heaven because the Bible says no. There are 30% that somewhat believe that. And only 28% strongly disagree. And yet, 75%, not 81% like in 1983, but now 75% of adults identify as Christian. I don't know what kind of Christian that would be if we're not Bible-based. Getting back to the Great Commission, by the way, what Jesus said was not a suggestion, it was a command. It was a command to the church. Which brings up the fact that 35% of Americans strongly disagree that, that Christians have a responsibility to evangelize others, while only 26 agree strongly to that point. And yet Jesus sends us out, which should be 100% of every Bible-believing person. And then again, remember that 75% of American adults identify as Christian. So what does that tell us? That tells us that today in the church of Jesus Christ, again, the visible church, what is seen as far as people going into churches today, and many people are going into churches today. But what it tells us is that in these churches, there is, uh, all of these statistics are leading to why we have such terrible uh, biblical illiteracy, why we have terrible spiritual ignorance in the church, and why we have social and cultural immorality, even in the church. And yet the word of God is very clear. It is very clear on all of these subjects, but especially on the deity of Jesus Christ, who he is. I've heard too many people who, you know, who have a lot of letters after their name, you know, who say, well, I've been to this seminary and that seminary, and I'm not really sure that Jesus is, is, is God in the flesh. I'm not really sure that Jesus died on the cross. I'm not really sure. Well, you know, if you get out of there, I'm sure you'll begin to look into the scriptures and realize the scriptures are more true than what you find over in those places where you've settled in to man's ideas. Because you see, the prophet Isaiah proclaimed the deity of Jesus Christ even before Jesus was on this earth in flesh. But he prophesied, as he did in Isaiah 7, 14, when he said, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's a direct, clear statement that the Messiah that would be born of Israel and in Israel and for Israel and for the world was God in the flesh. A virgin shall conceive. Not just a young maiden, a virgin. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. By the way, there's not, no real comma there in the, in the Hebrew. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, that can only speak of Jesus Christ, Yeshua, HaMashiach, Jesus, the Messiah. Thomas the Apostle himself, many, 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 many years later, after Jesus had died and rose again from the dead, 
Thomas, what we call doubting Thomas, the doubter, always doubting things and wanting to, you know, I got to see it before I believe it, that Thomas. Y'all remember him. He proclaimed Jesus did in a very interesting way. In John 20, verses 26 to 28, John records this encounter. It says, and after eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. And then came Jesus, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas. Why does he say to Thomas? Because Thomas didn't believe that he had risen from the dead. And he said to Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, OMG! <laughs> that's, that's that new thing, you know. Social media, OMG. Texting, OMG. No, that's not what he said. This wasn't about going, oh my God. You know what he said? His eyes were open. He saw the scars. In fact, from the text, we don't know that he put his hands into the side of Jesus. Jesus told him to. He probably did because he was obedient. I'd be too. Wouldn't you? So he said, my Lord and my God. And he said to Thomas, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are they who have not seen and believe. And that's you if you believe today that Jesus is risen from the dead. Do you know that even the demons proclaim the deity of Jesus Christ? Even the demons. Luke chapter 4, verse 41. It says, And devils also came out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuking them, suffered them not to speak, in other words, permitted them not to speak. For they knew that he was Christ. They knew that he was Messiah. And James, in his, in his letter, when James writes, he says, the, demon, the, de the devils were, the demons believe, and they tremble. What about us? Do we believe and tremble at the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? The angels certainly proclaimed his deity. In Luke 2, verse 11, For unto, us, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. There can only be a Savior who came from God, who was, in fact, God in the flesh. That would be Christ the Lord. They proclaimed him as God. And then, of course, Jesus would proclaim his deity. We've been studying the book of, uh, of John now for the better part of two and a half years. And in the, our study of the book of John, we've, we've seen the, the statements that Jesus has made about himself. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But every time he said the words, I am, 
He was saying he was God. And in John 10, verses 30 through 33, Jesus made a statement that, that, that made some of the Jewish religious leaders angry and they picked up stones. We were told in John 10, 30, I and my father are one. He just makes that simple statement. And notice verse 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, many good works have I showed you from my father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. They knew that when he said, I and the Father are one, or when he said, Before Abraham was, I am, they knew that he was declaring himself as God. But it was God the Father years and years previous to this. It was God the Father who proclaimed his Son, Jesus Christ's deity. Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Do you notice the language here? Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And yet in the next phrase, he says, Therefore, God, thy God, has anointed thee. And it was Paul in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, that said, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God. He interprets what, he, what God said to his Son. He said, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom, quoting from Psalm 45. But then if you want to see it even more clear, you look at Psalm 110, verse 1, where it says, the Lord said unto my Lord, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Sit at, the, at my right hand. The Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, should be, is the name of God. It is the I am. It is the Yahweh, the Y-H-W-H. Sometimes it's interpreted as Jehovah, Yahweh. The Jews will not pronounce that name. It's too holy for them to pronounce. They call him Hashem or Adonai or Elohim, but not Yahweh or Jehovah. Because they're really not a, a, a surety as to how it's pronounced. But it's holy. The Lord said unto my Lord. And God himself has said of himself. There's only, there, there's only one Lord. So when he applies the name of Lord to the one who sits at his right hand. He is calling him God. The father is acknowledging that his son is God in the flesh. And how we know that Jesus is certainly deity is because of his unchanging character. His immutability, that's a fancy word for unchanging. It's the theological term. He's immutable. Jesus doesn't change. In fact, again, in Hebrews 13, verse 8, it says, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. Never changes. That statement is a statement of Christ's deity. God never changes. And what that should do 
to all of us here is encourage us. Because if we had a God that could change, then he's not God. And he's truly not the most powerful God. You can look at all the gods of the world, all the gods that the people all across the world have, have worshipped over time. Nothing is ever the same about them. There's always some kind of transformation, metamorphosis, or some kind of changingness all the time. But with our God, there is no changing. There's an interesting story that illustrates this point. When Lloyd C. Douglas, novelist and author of The Robe, was a university student, he lived in a boarding house. And downstairs on the first floor was an elderly retired music teacher. I like this because I was a music teacher. I guess I'm the elderly one now. Downstairs on the first floor was an elderly retired music teacher who was infirm and unable to leave the apartment. And Douglas said that, that every morning they had a ritual that they would go through together. He would come down the steps, open the old man's door, and ask him, well, what's the good news? And the old man would pick up his tuning fork. And I, I tell you what, I was looking yesterday, I was tearing up my office looking for a tuning fork because I have one. But I don't know where I left it because I wanted to last night illustrate what a tuning fork does. But anyway, you just have to... Believe me. The old man would pick up his tuning fork and he would tap it on the side of his wheelchair and say, that is middle C. It was middle C yesterday. It will be middle C tomorrow. It will be middle C a thousand years from now. The tenor upstairs sings flat. The piano across the hall is out of tune. But my friend, this is middle C. Never changes. And the old man had discovered one thing upon which he could depend, one constant reality in his life, one still point in a turning world. For every believer in Jesus Christ, that one still point in a turning world, the one absolute of which there is no shadow of turning, is Jesus Christ himself. Because he is truth, he alone is the fulfillment of truth. He is love and he is the fulfillment of God's love and the extent of God's love. He is holy and he is the full extent of the holiness of God. He is eternal and he is the full extent of what it means to live forever and ever. He is omnipresent, he is omniscient, he is omnipotent and he is self-existent. He is God. And it was God who came to die for us. It was God who came to give his life. In fact, in John 1 verse 4, it says, In him was life. Without Jesus, we don't have any life. Without Jesus, we have no life. No true life. The life that differentiates us from the animal kingdom. By the way, we didn't come from the animal kingdom. We were created different. We live different, we act different. Sometimes we don't act quite as right as we should. In fact, that's the problem. We sinned. We sinned. But 
of Jesus, it says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And as I referenced earlier, John 14, verse 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's no other way. You can believe that there may be many roads to, to God and many roads to heaven, but Jesus made it real clear in that statement. You, you can believe him or not. I believe him. I believe him because he's God in the flesh. And because he came, he died, he shed his blood, and he rose again from the dead. In John 15, verse 13, Jesus said to his disciples, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that is exactly what Jesus did. In Hebrews 7, verse 26, it says, For such a high priest became us. And remember that he wasn't a high priest of the same line as, as Aaron and the Levites. He was a different high priest. He was a high priest. We could say he was of the order of Melchizedek, but certainly he was a high priest in a different category altogether. Because he became us. The high priests of the, of the Levitical priesthood, they had to offer for sins... Uh, they had to offer for sins for themselves before they could offer sins for the people. Not Jesus. He was sinless. For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. And this is why in John, verse, in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, which is the Logos, the full extent of the understanding of God. In, in Him, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And let's just state this case really clear right now. There is no article there to make him sound like he was a God. He is God. And in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, in other words, the exact representation of God, the exact, not a copy, the exact. It's like taking an image and just, you know, setting it in, in, into this, object, whether it's, it's wax or, or something that can be molded, but it is the exact representation, not a copy. And upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The resurrection confirms the deity of Jesus Christ because no one else could rise again like he did. No one else could live the life like he did. Without sin, no one else could endure what he had to endure like he did for you and for me. Secondly, the resurrection ratifies our redemption. It does something to give us an understanding of what it's all about for us. Jesus, made, Jesus himself made the declaration of a promised redemption at the Passover supper. 
the Pesach Seder of John 13, he made a declaration of a promised redemption when he said in Matthew 26, verses 28 and 29, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. But I say unto you, and listen carefully to what he says, but I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you. Take note of those two words, with you. What's significant about that? Jesus will die in a few hours from that statement. The disciples will die as martyrs for the most part. They will die years later preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But one day they would be alive again. That's the promise of redemption. It isn't about hope only now to feel good, to be happy, to be healthy. These are important things. But this is the reason why Paul says what he says. In verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 15, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. He says to his disciples, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, a time that is yet to come. And here, of course, we see both the promised redemption through the blood of Christ and the promise of his resurrection. Maybe you've heard this story of a little boy and his lost boat. Little boy's name is Tom, but we'll call him Tommy just to distinguish him from Pastor Tom. <laughs> but Tommy carried his new boat to the edge of a river. And he carefully placed it in the water and slowly let out the string. Had it tied to a string so he wouldn't lose it. How smoothly the boat sailed. Tom sat in the warm sunshine admiring the little boat that he had built. Suddenly a strong current caught the boat. And Tommy tried to, to pull it back to shore, but, but the string broke. And the little boat raced downstream. And Tom ran along the sandy shore as fast as he could, but, it, but his little boat soon slipped out of sight. And all afternoon he searched for that boat. Finally, when it was too dark to look any longer, Tommy sadly went home. And a few days later, on the way home from school, Tom spotted a boat just like his in a store window. And when he got closer, he could see. Sure enough, it was his. And Tom hurried to the store manager and he said to him, Sir, that's my boat in your window. I made it. And the manager said to him, Sorry, son, but someone else brought it in this morning. 
If you want it, you'll have to buy it for one dollar. Tom ran home and he counted all of his money until he finally had exactly one dollar in his hand. And when he reached the store, he rushed to the counter and he said to the manager, here's the money for my boat. And as he left the store, Tom hugged his boat. And he said this to the boat. He said, now you're twice mine. First, I made you. And now, I bought you. That boat was me and you. It was God who made us, not we ourselves. It was the Lord who made us. But somewhere along the way, we lost our way. Certainly, of course, we were born in sin because of man's fall in the garden, but we lost our way. Even if we grew up learning about the Lord and learning about God and Jesus, we were lost, lost in our trespasses, lost in our sins. And the pictures that we read in Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, seem to confirm that so clearly when we read in verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Not some, all. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It is in doing that that Jesus Christ who created us and made us in his image. That Jesus Christ, who made us, paid the ultimate price to receive us back. That's redemption. That's the full extent of redemption. It's a hard word to understand fully. Redemption. Really, it means to be ransomed back. Some of you who lived in the 50s and 60s, I know that's ancient to some of you. But those of us who may have lived in the 50s and 60s may remember green stamps and gold bond stamps. And you'd buy, you know, you'd buy groceries and they would give you so many stamps for all the, you know, for the money you spend in buying groceries, you know, so you'd have these stamps. And I remember as a kid growing up and coming home after shopping and, and saying, you want, Mom, you want me to put those stamps in the books? Because they would have books that you could put them in. And then, you know, when you finish a book of, of stamps, 
You know what you would do with it? You would go to the Redemption Center. Green Stamp Redemption Center on Yandel, I think it was. I can't remember. But you go down there and you would take your books and then they would have certain things that would cost one book of stamps or two books of stamps or three books of stamps. And, and, and so I, I always ask her, if, if, if you let me go ahead and put the stamps in the book, uh, you know, could, could I have one book? Because there's something I saw in the catalog that I'd like for one, you know, for one book of stamps. I think it was a baseball glove or something. She says, okay, okay. We'd go, go down and she'd go buy something like for the kitchen and I'd go look for the baseball glove. And we would redeem the, the stamps for something. We would receive something. But it's very special and precious to me is that my very first Bible cost me one book of green stamps. And I have that to this day. And I never forget what it means to me because it reminds me that I was redeemed by the blood of the cross. Maybe we can understand redemption better that way. We're told by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in whom we have redemption. We have been ransomed through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1 verses 12 through 14, giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet or fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us or transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption, we have been redeemed, we have been ransomed through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. His blood paid our price. Hebrews 9 verse 12, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. It's not just redemption, it's eternal redemption. It's a redemption that lasts forever and ever. In Hebrews 9 15, And for this cause... He is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, the law, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. More than just redemption, there is an inheritance that is involved. And that is how the resurrection ratifies our redemption. Lastly, The resurrection reassures us of Christ's return. And this is the reason why I wanted to add this issue of the rapture of the church. Because earlier I talked about how there are certain things that are not being taught any longer in in churches. And, and, And it's sad to note that we have so many people that are ignorant of the great commission of going forth and telling people about Jesus Christ in this world. But there's also that lack of telling people, hey, Jesus is coming again. And part of the reason is because in certain places, they're not telling Jesus people that Jesus is coming again. 
But I'm here to tell you that Jesus that rose again from the dead some 2,000 years ago is coming back because he said he would. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, let not your heart be troubled. To his disciples before he goes to the cross, he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. You don't have to depend upon the world's intellect. Whether he did or not, Jesus said, if it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am there, you will be also. What a promise that is. Now, parents, think about this for just a second. Sometimes we tell our kids, you know, something just to calm them down. Are you telling them the truth? Oh, honey, when we get there, I'll get you this, I'll get you that. Honey, I'll get you. Tell them the truth. That's what Jesus did. He wasn't just trying to calm them down a little bit. Well, you know, trying to trying to make it easy, you know, to them because he's going to go to the cross and they're still not getting it. You know, the light bulb hasn't gone on. It's not like that guy that said, you know, when his wife went out of town and came back home and says, "Where's the cat?" He says, "Well, the cat died." You all know that story, right? Oh, my goodness, the cat died. Well, why, why did you have to tell me that way? I mean, it's just so shocking that you tell me, you know, so you could have, you could have said it a lot easier. You could have said, you know, the cat was on the roof, and, and, and I couldn't get him down, and the cat, you know, the next day you, you would say, well, the cat, you know, fell off the roof, and then, you know, he went, took him to the little cat hospital, and then after the cat hospital, you know, he, you know, he, di- he died in the cat hospital. You could, have, you could have kind of made it easy for me. So, so how's, how's my mom? Well, she's on the roof. But you get it, right? I mean, tell the truth. That's what he did. That's what Jesus did. He told the truth. He wasn't telling them to try to make things easier. To to some degree, yes. He was just saying, listen, I'm coming again. That's the whole thing. I'm coming again. I'm going to die, but I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am, you'll be with me also. I'm going to be gone from you. He keeps telling them that. This is from our study in John. I'm going to be gone, but I'm sending you a comforter, another comforter, the Holy Spirit. He'll be with you, and he'll give you, you know, he's, he's the spirit of truth, and he'll always give you the truth. So not only have we as believers in Jesus Christ been promised re- resurrection life, because that's what he's promising them as well, because they're going to die, but eventually they're going to be with him. In John 14, verse 19, the same chapter, he says, Yet a little while in the world seeth me no more, but you see me because I live. You shall live also. You shall live also. Remember what was said to Martha in chapter 11 of John at the death of Lazarus and at the resurrection of Lazarus. I'm the resu- I am the resurrection in life. He who believes in me, though he die, will live again. 
Jesus has promised to take us home to be with him forever. And for us who are living in this time and in this generation of the signs of the times, of the things that are happening in this world that many people are confused about, listen, there's no reason to be confused. Read the scriptures. Realize that the nation of Israel exists. God said it would. The Valley of Dry Bones. The prophecy in Ezekiel 37. Israel, out of the ashes of the Holocaust, becomes a nation becomes a very central focus of all of Bible prophecy that's been pointing from the prophets to the, to the times in which we're living today. Folks, this is the reason why we can trust in God, because his word is true. The nations that are there surrounding Israel, the nations of the world, as they're getting into positions now, Ezekiel 38, 39, Psalm 83, all of these things that we've been talking about over and over and over again from the word of God, these are the things that we need to be ready for. But not to be worried about. Why? Because Jesus said, I'm coming for you. Listen to what he said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. I got it. 16 through 18, I should say. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, Paul says. And by the way, he's saying this to a church that is a very young church. I mean, it's a, I mean, it's a brand new church kind of thing. And don't, re, don't forget this. 1 Thessalonians was one of the very first books that Paul wrote. So it's early on in his own ministry, and yet what is he talking about? Prophecy, the coming of Jesus. He said, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. That's resurrection. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we which are alive and remain shall be harpazoed, shall be snatched away violently. That's what the word means. We, we put a pretty word, rapture. Shall be raptured. But man, that's how, that's how strong that word is. Shall be caught up together. Violently. But you know what? Don't worry about that. Because it won't hurt. The, the, the picture is how quickly he will snatch us away. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And he says, wherefore comfort one another with these words. Truth? Of course it is. You know that people, there are people today who will say, I don't believe in the rapture of the church. Then if you don't believe in the rapture of the church, you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because everything about resurrection is tied together with what happens in the future and everything that happens in the future is tied together with the resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Titus 2 verses 11 through 14, for the grace of God, I'm rushing here a little bit, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope. Remember what, 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 what Paul said in, in, in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 15? If in this life only we have hope in Christ. Just from our day to day, just living here, and there, well, I'll die and who knows what happens after that. Hey, the Bible tells us what happens after that. But if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But here Paul says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. That's the blessed hope. The glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. 
And if you'll, if you'll take a, 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 a moment sometime today at home in between, you know, a ham sandwich or whatever, well, that's unless you're kosher, but, you know, whatever. But in between, you know, the day and the time that you're together with family or whatever, and read 1 Corinthians 15, look at, look at the, 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 just the pattern that he's given us, the gospel, the first few verses, the gospel, talking about all those who have seen Jesus, the 500 witnesses, the eyewitness testimony, and then Peter, and then he says, and then in me too, Paul said, but he said, out of due season. Then he goes and talks about resurrection, and he, and he, and he defends resurrection from those who say there isn't a resurrection. And then he de defines resurrection in chapter 15, leading us to this thing when he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, die. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, putting together with 1 Thessalonians 4, For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. What's that called? Resurrection! And we shall be changed. If we're alive when Jesus comes, we will be raptured, snatched away, caught up. Is that too hard for us to, to understand? Is it too hard for us to believe that God is able to do that? The God who created the heavens and the earth in six human days. The God who raised his own son from the dead. Jesus who raised himself up as well from the dead. The Spirit also having a part of the raising of Jesus from the dead. Is it too hard for God? Nothing is too hard for God. So lastly, let me share with you. I got one minute to do this. Let me share with you three things that the resurrection of Jesus Christ should remind us of and, and should remind us as, of, uh, of, as his testimony. We who are his witnesses. This is what it should do for us. First of all, our preaching is never in vain. Our preaching is never useless. Our preaching is never useless. That's what it means to be in vain. Our preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ is never useless. Secondly, our witness of Jesus Christ is never without value. Isn't there great value in what Christ has done? That's why this day is so special to believers in Jesus Christ. Because it is with great value that he cared for us and did what he did. And lastly, our faith is never void. Our faith is never empty. Let's not live empty faith like those that Paul mentions. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If all we do is go to church every Sunday and, 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 and you know, do what we do on, you know, on Sunday and then go home and just not feel like anything's happened, something's wrong with the heart. Something's wrong with the heart. Folks, before you leave here today, I'm going to encourage you, come to Jesus Christ. Because he's alive. And he's here. And he's able. And he's willing. Someone asked him one day, he says, Lord, are you willing? He says, I'm willing. He is willing and able to give us life. He's willing and able to forgive us of our sins. He's willing and able to change us. He's willing and able to make us new creatures in Christ. The old passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And every disciple of Jesus Christ and every apostle of Jesus Christ, John being a, somewhat of an exception, but nonetheless, every one of them gave their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ.
They gave their lives. But they will sit with Christ one day, as we will. And he will drink of the fruit of the vine with us on that day in the kingdom. We have so much to look forward to, folks. So let's not live as though we have only hope in this life. There's a life to come. And God has given us the abilities and strengths. We have children. We want to care for them. We want them to come up in Jesus. We want them to grow up in the love of Jesus. But don't, dis- don't detach yourself from that. Don't bring your children in July or whatever month it is, June or July, for vacation Bible school and drop them off. You come and help. Maybe you need to come to vacation Bible school. You need to learn from the simplicity of Christ what Jesus Christ did for you. Today's the day of salvation. Now is the time.